we continue our reply to an eighth objection which has been raised against the absolute truthfulness and accuracy of the Bible under the question, what do we know about the truthfulness of God from the Bible? The eighth objection we have stated to be as follows. If the blessed atonement or death of Christ was a literal or exact payment for the accumulated guilt of sinners, past, present, and future, then why does the Bible indicate on every hand that the great majority of men will suffer eternal punishment for their sins when at the same time it makes absolutely clear that the Lord Jesus tasted death for all men in the same sense? Here we see three propositions that the atonement of Christ was a literal or exact payment for the guilt of sinners that the great majority of men are not being saved, and that at the same time the Lord Jesus is said to have died for all men in the same sense. Now obviously these three propositions cannot all be true, and we have stated them in a threefold way. Under case one we may state these propositions thus. If the atonement of Christ is a literal payment for sin, and if the Bible reveals that all men are not being saved, then we can only conclude in harmony therewith that the atonement could not have been made for all men in the same sense, but was limited to some select minority. Of course, if it was under these conditions made for all men in the same sense, then all would be saved, and this is brought out in our second case statement. There we affirm that if the atonement was a literal payment for sin, and if it was made for all men in the same sense, then all men will be saved on a basis of strict justice. This was universalism of a century and a half ago. Under case three, which we believe to be the true statement of the Word of God, we affirm these three propositions thus. The atonement was made for all men in the same sense. Secondly, still only a minority are being saved and spared eternal punishment by the forgiveness of God. Therefore, we may conclude that the atonement was not a literal payment or punishment for anyone's sins, but that the sufferings of Christ were substituted for the eternal punishment of sinners as a governmental measure, so that God may freely pardon past sins when other necessary conditions have been met. And we were in process of establishing the first proposition from the Word of God, namely, that the blessed atonement of Christ was made for all men in the same sense. And we have in this proposition a very outstanding and positive expression. We read in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6 this common verse, All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here we have this verse beginning with all and ending with all. If the first all, therefore, relates to all mankind, 
the last all must also relate to all men, and we have no right to change our designation. As we come to the New Testament, in John chapter 1 and verse 29, we have a statement of John the Baptist. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Here was no limited dealing with sin, but it was that of the whole world that the Lord Jesus took upon his heart. And in passing we notice that he took this upon his heart during his lifetime. And he not only bore the sins of the world in his death, but he bore them also during his life. In John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we have these familiar words. For God so loved the world, we see that the love of God uh, preceded the existence of the atonement even in God's own purposes. It, God's love was the motivating force back of the atonement, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is God's express purpose. And certainly he must provide a redemption for all men if he is going to invite all men to come and do this sincerely. In the 12th chapter of John, verse 32, we have the fact revealed that the atonement was to be a drawing power for all. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. Certainly, if the atonement of Christ is going to be influential toward all and have a drawing power toward all, it must have been made for all. We come to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then were all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Here we have the us and the all. In some sense, all humanity are involved in his death. This was brought out in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Although all do not brace the benefits of salvation procured by Christ's death, nevertheless his death and resurrection uh, influences all in a very pronounced way. Then we have the expression in these verses that were read, the they which live. And the question arises whether this refers to a specific spiritual life that they had partaken of, or whether it refers to all of men who were living at the time that the apostle wrote. And certainly the they which live must refer to all who are alive at a given time and during Paul's lifetime. It cannot refer to those who are spiritually alive because the New Testament plainly tells us that such are not living for themselves. 
For example, verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So verse 15 could not refer to spiritual life with the admonition that those in true spiritual life with the glorious new birth of the Holy Spirit are to forsake their selfishness and live for God in consecration because this is the very essence of the Christian life. For example, in Romans 6, verses 16 to 18, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Certainly, this is not an admonition for those in true spiritual birth to live for God. It is a statement that those who are so born of the Spirit do live for God. We could also read several more scriptures. Perhaps we should. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 reads as follows, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation or our manner of life, notice the past tense, in times past, in the lusts or desires of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature or by established character the children of wrath, even as others. Certainly this is a positive affirmation, is it not? But lest there be any doubt, we read 1 John 3, 7 to 10. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin. Or he is unable to keep on continuing in sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. So certainly... Paul could not be admonishing the Christians at Corinth that they should make a first consecration of their lives to Christ. But he is admonishing that inasmuch as the death of Christ was made for all men in the same sense, therefore all who are living should be influenced by this profound fact and should not be continuing to live for their own selfish ends but should repent and turn to God and find the forgiveness of their sins. We go on to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 6, where we read, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Here again is God's express purpose that all men should be saved. For there is one God and one mediator, between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So God was sincerely desirous that all should be saved, 
and thus caused an atonement to be made for the sins of all without any limitation whatsoever. We have in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 a tremendous expression. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. What could be more explicit than this? But we shall have to continue our reading at our next meeting. How remarkable it is that the Bible affirms what we would expect of a God of love and impartiality, that the Lord Jesus Christ was sent into the world to die for all men in the same sense. What a profound gospel message to tell forth to all. Our Heavenly Father, with deep thanksgiving, we come to Thee, asking Thy blessing upon the statement of this remarkable fact, that the Lord Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. And now we pray that many may take courage, may repent of sin, come by faith to the atonement of Christ, be forgiven, restored to Thee, and walk on through life in happy fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.